Did you know trillions of microorganisms, such as bacteria, virus, and fungi, are living inside of your body right now? Most of those microorganisms, or microbes, are supposed to be there and actually keep us healthy, while others may make us sick, sometimes in unexpected ways. The microbiome can be described as the community of microbes that reside in a particular part of the human body. The past two decades has seen an exponential increase in the number of publications related to the microbiome and how it affects human health. The idea of a complex interplay of microorganisms impacting our health is difficult to grasp for many of us. It is often easier to focus on and understand health and disease in a more simple framing that considers one exposure and one health outcome. Nonetheless, there's growing evidence that the microbiome in all its complexity can impact health and disease. Some of the diseases that have been linked to the microbiome may be surprising. For example, it may be strange to hear that some scientists think the microbes that reside in our guts may affect the development of Alzheimer's disease. Because the field is new, most of us don't even know where to start in terms of thinking about and digesting research on the microbiome and distinguishing the, and distinguishing the microbiome from things like the metabolome, the transcriptome, and others that all warrant their own episodes is important for understanding how we study these things. Today's episode is a primer on the microbiome and its connection to human health. I'm your host, Kassan Hamra, Assistant Professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today, I'm joined by host of Epidemiology Counts, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center. Hi, Brian. Hi. Glad to be here again. Today, we welcome Noel Mueller, Associate Professor of Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and an expert in microbiome research. Noel and I work together at Johns Hopkins within the Environmental Influences on Child Health Hopkins program. Thanks for joining us, Noel. Thanks for having me on the show, Gusan and Brian. Sure thing. So let's get started with absolute basics because Lord knows we need them. How do you describe the microbiome to your friends and family who aren't in the field? Well, Gassan, you did a really nice job in the intro. I'll um, just expand upon that a little bit. So over the last two decades or so, um, due largely to the advent of high throughput sequencing technology and the pipelines for processing the data, we've come to learn a lot about our microbiome. Um, which constitutes the microorganisms that live in and on our bodies, the human microbiome. This includes bacteria, fungi, archaea, viruses, protozoa. Uh, much of the research focuses on the gut uh, because the gut uh, intestinal tract constitutes about 70% of the microorganisms in the human microbiome. And a lot of the work is also focused on bacteria largely because of the sequencing technology, the amplicon sequencing technology that we've used However, that's changing now that we're using more shotgun metagenomic sequencing, which allows us to see other microorganisms in addition to the bacteria. Mm. Um, typically, the way I kind of start by framing it is that we've thought a lot about our health in terms of just our own human uh, cells and human genome, but we're starting to learn now that we actually have more microbial cells than we have human cells, and we actually have far more uh, microbial genetic content than we own we have uh, human genetic content, about a hundred to one uh, ratio of uh, microbial genetic contact to human genetic content. Mm -hmm. um, so the last two decades have really 
helped us to understand that the majority of the microorganisms that live in and on our bodies are actually either commensal or symbiotic and not pathogenic to our health. Um, keeping them in balance um, through healthy lifestyle and uh, reducing exposure to certain environmental um, toxins can um, keep us in good health and keep us away from disease, you know, and that's, you know, very broadly speaking, we can go into more depth about certain things, um, but they have, you know, enormous, enormous impacts on kind of the health um, in, terms, in terms of how they process our foods, taking indigestible fibers, turning them into energy and other molecules like short chain fatty acids. Um, at the very beginning of life, priming our immune system, um, the, the adaptive immune system is, is largely determined by our exposure to microbes. Um, also, they are the interface with our environment, uh, broadly speaking, on all of our epithelial surfaces. Um, so the mucosal barrier um, can kind of, they kind of help regulate the mucosal barrier, um, determining what gets into our circulation and what doesn't, uh, which can lead to differences in chronic inflammation. So those are some of the ways that we've learned that the microbiome can influence our health, uh, leading to health or disease. Very interesting. Um, so, you know, you, you, the idea of trillions of little things living in our body, you know, may freak some germaphobes out, but, you know, you did a good job right there of showing why we need those little bugs in our body to, to help everything uh, work the way it's supposed to. Um, you know, we've actually, it's very interesting that we've evolved as, as a, a species to actually need all of these things to, to keep us going, right? Um, so let's talk about the bad bugs now. You know, so you, you mentioned when you were talking about keeping things in balance, you know, what exactly does that mean? How do things get out of balance? How do the bad bugs take over the good bugs? Like what, what, what are, what does that exactly does that mean to when things get out of balance? Yeah, so this is a, a dynamic field of research, right? It has, it's relatively young and we're still learning about it. I just want to put that in context. And we're learning about what constitutes a healthy microbiome or an unhealthy microbiome, right? Um, we kind of stay away from framing things as bad microbe or mm -hmm. good microbe because it's very context specific. Mm -hmm. um, um, an example can be H. pylori, right? Causes gastric cancer, but also can be protective for esophageal uh, cancer. Um, and another example is a bug called Bacteroides fragilis. Um, this type of microorganism bacteria can break down fiber producing short chain fatty acids, which can have health benefits. But if you're not eating any fiber in your diet, then it's going to go to the sugars that are found in your mucin layer, break those down for nutrition, and then potentially cause, you know, intestinal permeability, which could be a bad thing. So it's context specific, but in general, you know, if you are, you know, carpet bombing your microorganisms with antibiotics on a regular basis, probably not a good thing for your, for your gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. um, if you're um, consuming a highly processed diet, um, which doesn't include a lot of indigestible fiber, plants, um, probably not a great thing for your microbiome. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other nuances, of course, to it. It's not such broad strokes. Um, Things about uh, the types of things that are in processed foods, you know, emulsifying agents may have an impact on your microbiome. And maybe we'll get to this later, but, you know, too much alcohol consumption mm. also could be a potential detriment to your microbiome. So it's, it's a lot of the things that we kind of know about a healthy lifestyle and healthy diet also apply to a healthy microbiome. 
Um, there's some additional factors like antibiotics, um, certain medications that can negatively impact your microbiome. And we're continuing to learn about those things. So, so it stands out to me, what you basically just said is that what we know so far confers or conforms a lot with things we kind of already knew, right? About like assuming healthier foods, high fiber. I'm assuming probiotics, which are, you know, little slapped on every yogurt label that you find nowadays, even if they're just probably just garbage sugar food, then they probably still say yeah. probiotics on them. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask um, about that later. Yeah. But what are the kind of more surprising findings so far in terms of the microbiome? I mean, you mentioned antibiotics, and that certainly seems pretty notable, especially with the tricky balance of needing antibiotics at times, but maybe not others. But what are kind of some of the more like interesting findings that we've that we know about so far in terms of things you wouldn't expect uh, related to the microbiome and how it can impact our health? Sure. So. So I think I study a lot the infant microbiome. I think one of the surprising things that we've learned over the last year or so is that in adults, a gut microbiome is usually um, better off in, in a better state of health if it has more diversity, more types of organisms, um, similar to kind of biodiversity in general and, and as you think of it. But in the infant microbiome, especially in the first three months of life, uh, it actually turns out that higher diversity may be an indicator of poor gut health for the mm. poor uh, neonates. Um, so higher diversity is associated with C-section delivery, antibiotics, formula feeding. Um, and also higher diversity has been prospectively associated with higher BMI later in life, higher risk uh, potentially for overweight and obesity and other um, immune outcomes uh, such as asthma. So unlike the adult gut microbiome, diversity in infants may be a different thing. And that may be due to um, the formation of the immune system, the uh, lack of bifidobacterium infantis, which we can talk about a little bit, which is kind of the superstar of the infant microbiome. Babies who have higher microbiome diversity tend to have lower bifidobacterium infantis colonization. That might be something that's driving these negative health outcomes that are associated with it. Another thing I think that is worth mentioning is that the gut microbiome in adults, higher diversity is a good thing. That's not true for all microbiomes. The vaginal microbiome, for example, during pregnancy is a much healthier microbiome when it's highly, has a high um, predominance of lactobacillus, right? So lactobacillus creates um, molecules that keep the pH level between 3.8, 4.5 around there. And that is a more acidic environment that keeps out potential pathogenic species, which can cause bacterial vaginosis, or in its worst case during pregnancy can cause potentially preterm birth by ascending the vaginal canal. So I think it's, it's good to be, you know, not make generalizations about microbiome diversity to all different body habitats or niches. That's something I've, I've definitely learned. Um, not necessarily unexpected, but I think a lot of people who come into the field naively thinking that higher diversity is always a good thing. It's not always true. Yeah. seems like there's just so many complex, different ways to study this, different contexts. Uh, you know, diversity is good in one, bad in another. One type of bacteria or virus might be good in one con you know, context, not in another. How, how, do you, how do you control for all of that 
variability and 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 like Gassan said in the intro, you yeah. know, we we tend to try to reduce things to x causes y. How the heck do you control that that amount of complexity in your uh, studies? Well, I think you kind of go back to the basic principles of epidemiology, really. So you have observational studies. Um, what I think is unique about the microbiome, and it makes me attracted to it, is that it's something that could be thought of as a mediator. So we talked about, you know, it's influenced by a lot of the healthy lifestyle habits mm -hmm. that we already know of. Yep. It may be on the pathway to disease outcomes, mm -hmm. but we can also do something about it, right? We can modify it. Mm -hmm. Unlike our genome, you know, say for CRISPR-Cas9 technologies, we're not going to be editing our genome, right? Mm -hmm. But we can do things like change our lifestyle or change our environmental right. exposures. And it leads itself, lends itself to kind of this modifiability or changeability, unlike the genome. So mm -hmm. I, I think that that's attractive. But what that also means is it can be, it can generate hypotheses from observational data that can be falsified through experimentation or clinical trials. Mm -hmm. So, so I was, you know, that's like exactly John Popper talks about it's falsifiable. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I've, you know, potential outcomes framework in epidemiology lends itself well to microbiome research in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, there's different ways, of course, of modifying the microbiome, but one of the ways is by introducing live biotherapeutics, as, mm -hmm. as Gisan alluded to, or probiotics. You know, mm -hmm. probiotics have gotten kind of a bad rap over the years because probiotics historically have been based on organisms that are easy to culture. But not organisms that were that were um, thought of as helpful or or not helpful, right? Um, mm -hmm. They were just you know convenient to culture, so let's put them in different foods or let's put them in a, a capsule. But now we're actually moving to the next generation, I think, of probiotic development where there's actually good R and D based on you know twin studies, large epidemiologic studies, germ-free mouse studies. And I, I hope that the future of probiotics or live biotherapeutics is better than the, the past. So, so maybe we can test some of these observations from epidemiology studies and get at causality and reduce the complexity from the observational studies just through experimentation. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, you just reminded me that I left my probiotic kombucha in my fridge at home, but too bad, I'll have to, have to get some more. Um, but uh, you, you just said so much that I wanted to, follow up on because I was I was going to ask whether you've taken the the observational data and tried to actually intervene and change the microbiome in such a way but you know it's interesting because you said it lends itself to the counterfactual framework and I think that's true however because of the complexity it's not like take a pill or not take a pill it's like you you mm -hmm. may change the microbiome in a way that's not actually the positive uh you know um change that could bring about the outcome that you're looking for. And so, like you said, with diversity versus non-diversity, you know, you may be upping a certain um, microbe, but by doing so, you're getting rid of the level of diversity. So like, you know, it's like, what are you actually mm -hmm. changing and what is the causal uh, mechanism there? I, I think that that's hard in my mind to yeah. get your head around, like, what are you actually controlling for? What is the, the intervention that you're putting in there? Yeah, I think that's a good, really good point, Brian, is, you know, diversity is a, is a, it's an interesting metric because it tends to be associated with a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, there's different types of diversity too in the microbiome mm -hmm. field. That's, that's worth mentioning. Alpha diversity has a se several metrics that underlie alpha diversity, but in general can be thought of as the number mm -hmm. of species in your environment. You can compare two different environments, like two different forests, uh, deciduous forest, coniferous forest, 
may have the same number of microorganisms. So they're going to have the same alpha diversity, but they have very different types of organisms living in them. Right. So they're going to have different beta diversity. So maybe you've probably heard of this before. And then when you see differences, let's say you don't see differences in alpha diversity metrics, but you see differences in beta diversity. That's telling you that there's different types of species there. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, gives you a sense that you should home in on what are driving those differences. What are the differences in the composition of those two habitats? Mm-hmm. And then you can get at these questions about what are the organisms or consortium of organisms that are driving the differences and can those be tested? Mm-hmm. There's also, when you use shotgun metagenomic, whole genome shotgun metagenomic data, you can get at functionality. Um, I think functionality is helpful for biologic plausibility, but it's not something that I feel lends itself to this counterfactual framework of thinking as well. Um, But that's just in an aside. I think epidemiologists kind of view this, well, let's identify the organism and then we can test the counterfactual, counterfactual aspects of it. But with diversity, like you say, it's hard to really think about this counterfactual framework in terms of how we're gonna test this later on. So I think it's the first step, let's say we're looking at beta diversity, and then the next step is saying, well, what are the organisms that we might think about intervening upon, or we're looking at as pathogenic or pathobiotic or uh, commensal or symbiotic. Um, But I'll give you an example, like, of the work that we've done that's gone from observation to translation. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've done, you know, there's been a lot of observation about C-section versus vaginal delivery and health outcomes associated with C-section delivery. Um, meta-analyses have suggested on average, C-section deliveries associated with higher risk of childhood overweight and obesity. Um, we've, we've studied that. I studied that at Columbia University during my postdoc and We've then kind of looked at the differences in the microbiome between C-section delivered, vaginally delivered babies. There are differences, definitely strong. It's one of the strongest determinants in the first couple of weeks or even months of life. But some studies have shown that difference extends maybe to even four years of life. That's mm-hmm. the longest they've followed the babies out to look at that. <laughs> but I think it's an important point is that regardless of whether those differences persist, there could be a legacy effect of early life differences in the microbiome having different effects on programming that even if there's convergence of microbiome later in life, those differences can have long lasting effects on the immune system or the mm-hmm. metabolic system. Kind of puts you on a path right in yeah, the beginning. Exactly. And, and, and there's some biologic underpinnings to that statement too. Um, so the microbiome produces molecules like short chain fatty acids and butyrate in particular. And butyrate is a well-known histone deacetylase inhibitor. Um, So it has potential for epigenetic effects. And we showed that C-section delivered babies and vaginally delivered babies have differences in butyrate production early in life. So there's there's some underpinnings to that whole legacy effect. But back to kind of how we went about testing whether this is potentially causal or not. After several observational studies, including sibling studies, showed these differences between C-section, vaginally delivered babies, we said, well, what can we actually test? You know, we can't randomize childbirth to C-section versus vaginal delivery, obviously. So there was a mouse model. They looked at C-section delivered mice. Sure enough, in that model, C-section delivered mice had greater, greater accrual of body fat mass than vaginally delivered mice. Um, so in mice, it seems like it could be potentially causal. But then 
what can we test in humans? So what we did is we said, okay, well, we can actually give babies the microbiota they would have received had they been vaginally delivered, the C-section delivered babies. So now we have a small pilot study um, that we should be sending out for publication soon that is showing at least in the first month of life, which we have data for now, there are differences between the, the babies who are seeded with their mother's bacteria compared to the babies that are just given what they would normally be given during a, a C-section delivery. So it's a randomized controlled trial, a sterile gauze versus a gauze with the maternal microbes uh, that the baby would have received if they were vaginally delivered. And we're seeing some differences um, that suggest there's engraftment of the bacteria that we're introducing at the beginning of life. And the next question will be, do those persist and do they have consequences for health outcomes of the babies? And are there benefits of the seeding procedure that outweigh any risk? Because there's also potential risk of introducing bacteria to a C-section, a naive microbiome uh, neonate. So, so this is something where I think we've taken observational data from epi studies and we said, here's one component of delivery, the sharing of microbes between mom and baby. Can reconstituting the sharing of microbes in C-section deliver babies have an impact on microbiome development and have an impact on health development of the baby? Cool. Yeah. I got, I'm really interested in the mediation kind of side of things. So, you know, the kind of just the general idea that the microbiome connect sort of as a barrier to any kind of impact of other exposures that we experience in day-to-day -day life. So what kind of evidence do we have about that so far? Just kind of like speaking yeah. like broadly, like any kind of particular uh, notable findings that you know about. So there's, there's been several studies, um, Rothschilds and colleagues, first published in 2018, a large study um, from Europe. Europeans are far ahead of us on microbiome sampling, and Scandinavians in particular, much oh, larger geez. data sets. Oh, yeah. But they're also, they're, I think that they're just a little bit more, yeah, they, they believe in the whole microcosm and macrocosm of things. But they, they did a nice study in 2018 looking at the contribution of genetics and the microbiome to cardiometabolic risk factors. And uh, they also looked at the contribution of genetics to the microbiome. And they found that the contribution of genetics to the microbiome was somewhere around 3%. So hmm. very small. And hmm. the majority therefore is, is largely due to environmental factors. Um, and then that, that result just recently, 2022 article was confirmed um, a new study showed in Dutch adults that the microbiome is probably 6%. The variation of uh, beta diversity was explained by only, I think the genetics only explained about 6% of the microbiome variation. But you know, the take home there is that the large part of the microbiome is explained by environmental factors. But we've done a, kind of a poor job, I think, of, of saying which environmental factors exactly because of our measurement, I think, of the environmental factors. So diet should be probably what I would say in somebody who's not taking medications, the largest contributor to microbiome variation. But different approaches to diet assessment have given us different results. So um, using just a traditional a priori dietary pattern explains about one to 2% of microbiome variation, still highly significant, but only one to 2%. If you use this approach called the food tree approach, where 
they classify your foods, like the different foods that you and I have eaten, you know, we have a probably a huge amount of dissimilarity there in the foods that you and I have eaten over the last day. But if you looked at macronutrients, right, everything would be pretty aligned. But foods, individual foods are very different. So this food tree approach takes the same approach to how you classify microbes with taxonomy and does that with your foods. And they can explain about 20% of variation. So back to the question about mediation, um, looking at, you know, first of all, you need to have you need to have an exposure that explains a, a large percent of variation in your mediator. So we need to first get to that point. I think this food tree approach maybe is the better way of, of looking at the impacts of diet on the microbiome could allow us in the future to then look at how diet mediates the effects of food on health outcomes. Um, but there's other ways, you know, back to like the C-section delivery example, there was a study from the child cohort in Canada looked at, okay, C-section delivery has a large impact on the microbiome early in life. What about the microbiome or is the microbiome mediating then the health outcomes of C-section delivery? So they looked at different ratios of enterobacteriaceae to bacteroides and found that that specific ratio mediated the association of C-section delivery with obesity and C-section delivery with asthma. So that's an, like a little example of in the work that we're doing. Yeah, there seems to be evidence of mediation. But um, in general, I think mediation is also very difficult to look at in the yeah. microbiome because there's so many different aspects of the microbiome, as Brian alluded to. There's the composition and there's all the different types of species and the relative abundance of the species, which makes it difficult to look at composition. There's beta diversity, which is the overall dissimilarity of the different environments and then there's alpha diversity so you need to kind of say which of these we're most interested in looking at as our mediator and if you're using something like beta diversity you need to probably work with a biostatistician to uh, work through the different uh, ways of looking at mediation and decomposition of your effects so something that kind of stands out to me in what you said so far is so you said one study suggested that maybe three to 6% is explained by genetics and then up to 20% by diet. But that still leaves a massive percent unexplained. So my first thought is, what are the other things that people believe could impact the microbiome's char characteristics, diversity? And is there some percentage of the microbiome that's just immutable? Like we can't change it based mm -hmm. on anything like you, you said it's kind of prone it's prime for intervention which is compelling of course to public health researchers mm -hmm. whose our goal is intervention our goal is to improve health but is there some aspect of the microbiome that just it's it is what it is and we can't change any anything about it no matter what we do yeah you know that's that's a really good question i still think that you know we have tools of measuring environmental exposures that are pretty poor in many of the studies that have done this um, with a large, the, the large studies, you know, they don't have the best ways of assessing diet. Um, some of them are based on food frequency questionnaire. The other smaller studies that have shown that there's a greater percent of variation explained are usually based on seven day diaries, which probably are better for this, you know, explaining variation in the microbiome. But then there's other clues that there are, there are environmental factors 
that we just still haven't yet measured well. So cohabitation is a strong explanatory factor for microbiome variation, mm-hmm. um, much more than heritability. So that does tell you that there's something about the shared environment that is driving the you know variation in the microbiome that we still don't understand completely. Yeah, yeah. And patch a- ownership is another you know another thing uh-huh. that. It's a, it's a pet project for many investigators who are in the microbiome field. Um, and there, there's other factors too. Like, you know, we just have to do, a, I think, a better job of measuring the exposome. You know, I don't, I don't actually know. If micro, you know, the exposome is something I'm not that well familiar with. I think, mm-hmm. Kassan, you're doing more work in that. But um, perhaps, you know, somebody who's doing exposome could integrate microbiome with their research to see if that could explain a larger percent of the variation. Yeah, well, I think I think uh, I think the people studying the exposome don't really know the exposome, unfortunately. But that's a, that's kind of like a you know I think that I I, th- I describe the exposome as a long game. I mean we're just like just like tip of the iceberg on that, yeah. and it's yeah. like add that to the microbiome, you're just basically you know I guess some people would say the microbiome is just part of the exposome, but it's just that's a, that's 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 like the series <laughs> to try to digest the exposome. Yeah. The other thing that I guess I, I didn't mention is there's probably endogenous factors that are controlling microbiome, right. you know, sex hormones, um, immune factors, you know, aging is strongly associated with microbiome diversity as well. So we can't rule out that it's endogenous factors as well as exog- exogenous factors. But, you know, again, those can be controlled by environment as well. Can right. you can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that endogenous versus exogenous? Yeah, so I think, so for example, with the immune system, it's highly dynamic during the first two years of life. Mm-hmm. That's also when you see the immune system being in its most um, unstable mm-hmm. state. So highly dynamic microbiome and immune system kind of overlapping. Mm-hmm. And the directionality of, of that, I, I don't think has been quite worked out. Right. Um, sex hormones are also strongly associated with the microbiome. Um, there are differences between men and women in the microbiome in, in most studies, but those have been shown to emerge after puberty. Mm-hmm. So before puberty, highly congruent between men and women or girls and boys. And then after puberty, when differences in sex hormones really start to emerge, that's when you start to see the differences in the microbiome. So those are just two kind of clues that yeah. there's also endogenous um, control of the microbiome, but I think that that still needs to be worked out. Yeah, interesting. I, I I just as you were talking and you and Gasan, I um try. I was like, okay, so maybe it's not your genetics, right? So it's not just your genes. That's such a s- small little variation. But at the same time, um, so little of what we do as maybe adults can actually change, you know, our actual microbiome. So it could it be what I'm my take is, and and tell me if I'm wrong on this, is that kind of early life exposures, the exposome in early life might set up your microbiome, you know, at an early point. And then at that, and then from then on, it's kind of hard to change it. Is that a fair statement or not fair? Or do we not know? I'm, I, no, I think that's a good, it's an interesting point, Brian. I'm a life course epidemiologist uh-huh. um, at heart. Mm-hmm. So I think early life factors do have a much larger effect on microbiome mm-hmm. than later life factors. And that's actually borne out mostly in the data as well. It's, mm-hmm. it's a more mutable, the microbiome is more mutable in the first years of life than later in life. Mm-hmm. But we also know that 
we can do something about our microbiome mm. differences later in life. So there have been studies like from Lawrence David and colleagues, um, famous study back in the mid, I think 2015, where they took a group of, of people, adults, healthy adults, and started them on a more carnivorous, carnivorous diet, meat-based diet, and switched them to a plant-based diet. And they saw rapid changes in the microbiome diversity, alpha, beta, and composition within a matter of days, switching them mm. from an all-meat diet pretty much to a plant-based diet. Wow. Okay. So you can change the microbiome mm-hmm. if you want to. With major changes. Once they, once, once they went back to their normal diets, everything went back uh-huh. as well. Okay. So, so with major changes, you can. With antibiotics, typically, you know, you can see a change that if you just take one course of you know, vancomycin as a healthy adult, they're going to, your, your microbes are largely going to come back to the pre-antibiotic state. But if you take multiple courses of antibiotics, that's when you start to risk losing species that you had there before that can lead to overgrowth of other microorganisms and lead to infections or other types of disorders. You know, C. difficile infection is a classic example of um, treating with antibiotics multiple times leading to an infection that can't then be treated with antibiotics and you need to take a more drastic approach like fecal microbiome transplant. But um, yeah, but I think that your, your point is, is well taken, like changing the microbiome once you're an adult is a little bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, unless you're doing drastic, you know, environmental or lifestyle changes, Mm -hmm. probably not going to see a huge change like you would uh, in your first years of life. Got it. So the diet, I mean, it, it's interesting. Like we, it seems like we're going back to the gut here and the diet thing. It seems like if I, uh, if I go for the rest of my life eating yogurt and broccoli, I might be okay. <laughs> get some kombucha sure, in there. I know exactly. Get the kombucha. My wife is a big kombucha fan. Oh, I love it. But I'm sure. I'm sure the microbiome. Drink kombucha because it tastes easy. good. I wouldn't drink. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> drink it because it's going to give you any health benefits. I'm ignoring that. Okay. You're, you're about to take down the industry with that <laughs> yeah, comment. Exactly. Noel. I mean, I mean, there are a lot. It I makes mean, me are, feel better, man. There is a lot of information on those on those cans and bottles of kombucha that would uh that would would not be defensible to you i think but your your comment about broccoli is an interesting one because many of the health or the cancer uh, fighting compounds of broccoli are only made available to the human you know circulatory system because of the microbial breakdown mm. of broccoli so so it actually the health benefits of broccoli Kassan, may depend on your microbes so hopefully you have Bacteroides uh, beta in your system to help break down broccoli and give you the well, health benefits you want. I'm Super kind of hoping I'm I'm more of a fillet of fish kind of guy. Like <laughs> if I eat that for the rest of my life, like if you remember if you remember that movie, Super Size Me, that gentleman who just said he would he would eat fish fish I think it was fillet of fish from McDonald's breakfast, lunch, and dinner or something crazy like that. And, oh, he was uh, he was tried to he tried to act as a counterexample to the protagonist in the documentary, but I I'm I'm not convinced I'm not convinced that I should go that route. You, you're gonna have to well have you to know if you believe in pre- if you believe in precision nutrition, you know you just might be able to eat filet of fish and pizza and be totally fine because that's that's the mind frame that that's, people in precision nutrition are taking is that 
you know, the foods that are going to be beneficial for you, Gassan, are going to be, be different. totally different than for me. And I think that that's, you know, an area that requires a lot of evidence because we have <laughs> dietary guidelines that well, for most people should work quite well. Yeah. But well, there's there some go. really kind of provocative papers out there that suggest, you know, your glycemic responses to food vary drastically depending on factors like your microbiome but also other factors. So, so and people, yeah. people are so, so interested in this concept of precision medicine or precision nutrition. So of course it's going to well, be hard to move. Well, if you could, if you could figure that. out how to change your microbiome so that it healthily digests pizza, you'd be a billionaire, man. Or, or <laughs> exactly. I, well, it sounds, it sounds more so like I could, it sounds like there's a, there's, there, there may come a day, uh, really, I, I, this is a serious question. I want to, I want to preface this by saying this is actually a serious question. It seems like there may come a day where I go to a medical office. They somehow take a sample or swab of my bike microbiome and say, based on your, based on the composition of your microbiome, this is really the best diet for you, yeah. which yeah. wouldn't seem, I think, I think you, some of your work, even Noel has kind of talked about this. I think you've, you've yeah. done this this work with like kind of like isolated groups in in certain parts of the world where you like look at their diet or they i think it was related to their age yeah no mommy the, yeah yeah yeah, I, yeah you t- tell us about that because i thought about that's that. a yeah yeah tell us about that example huh sure 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 but let's get back also to how we're going to get to that point of is it going to be your doctor telling you that or is it going to be your toilet telling you that because i think there's also <laughs> smart toilets out there that are going to be informing actually that they they just had i think the first prototype um come out jack gilbert he's at uc san diego he works with rob knight he's um heading up the earth microbiome project but he's a part of working with a startup company to do these smart toilets which gives you real-time feedback of your gut microbiome a probe in your toilet but Uh it's actually an, an entire toilet system that could probably give real time kind of read out to your phone or whatever saying, Oh, good job. You know, you're eating more fiber, you're eating more broccoli. <laughs> oh, gosh. And then you could change your diet accordingly. So we're also, I'm, I'm part of this really interesting grant, R21, R33 NIH funded grant, you know, fingers crossed that we're going to get the notice of award any day um, to develop smart underwear, which will give well, readouts of the microbial gases from flattest events. Oh my goodness. Based, More power you know, to you, to, man. I'm glad this is your research and not mine. I'm going to enroll my <laughs> But you know, down the road, Brian, we, we could do it. You know, we could do a smart underwear Alzheimer's disease study. So we could, we could tell me, uh, you do the prototype and then we'll yeah, once we get it, it to that point, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> but so we yeah we've done a little bit of work with Yanomami which are an isolated group of hunter gatherers down in Venezuela and Brazil right on the mm-hmm. border there. I got a map in the background here of them. And uh so we so I studied the blood pressure changes throughout the life course because there's dogma in cardiovascular epidemiology that blood pressure is is one of those things that just goes up with age, regardless of what you're exposed to. Mm. And, you know, this, this notion has been challenged in the past by people like Jeremiah Stamler, and uh, he did this large intersalt study. And in that intersalt study, one of the groups that had the lowest blood pressure was this group from Venezuela, the Yanomami. And he said, it's because they're not eating any salt and they don't have any processed foods in their diet. Mm. So, the opportunity came up. My mentor, Maria Gloria Dominguez Bello from NYU, 
now at Rutgers, was going down, she's from Venezuela originally, was going down to study the microbiome of this group. And she said, you know, are you interested in studying anything else? And I said, well, let's study blood pressure. This is the same group that's supposed to have the lowest blood pressure known to man. So we've studied blood pressure from babies through adults and found that the Yanomami had flat blood pressure, no increase in blood pressure over the life course. Um, but the closely, geographically closely related um, group, the Yekwana, who's had a lot more interactions with the outside world and more processed foods, more uh, salt in their diet, had this stepwise increase in blood pressure over the life course. Um, Not quite the same of what you see in the U.S., but similar. Hmm. So it's very kind of clear evidence that environment does matter for for blood pressure as well. And then Gloria, um, Maria Gloria, she published on the microbiome of the Yanomami and compared the Yanomami to the Hadza warriors in Africa, to Italians who eat a lot of, you know, uh, pasta, to Americans, and found that among all groups, the microbiome diversity of the Yanomami is the most diverse mm-hmm. and also dominated by totally different species than what you see in Western cultures. So more wow. Prevotella, but also much more diversity. And the Do they diversity live longer? pieces. They don't live longer. So that's, you know, <laughs> that's something like we can't say, oh, let's just go back to, right, right, right. let's go back to what the Yanomami are doing because they have infectious diseases that are yeah, still sure, sure. You know, going to kill them. And they also mm-hmm. still have intertribal wars, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, and they don't have any, any of the Western medical advancements that are right, going right, to keep right, people okay. long. So fair enough. So Not they don't live comparison. long as, but you know what? We don't know a lot of things about them. One thing that'd be really interesting to study if we could ever get back down there the political environments keeping people from doing a lot of research down there. We don't know whether their brains are changing over time either. Like, mm-hmm. is that something that's in- inevitable or is age associated cognitive impairment also oh, yeah. just, just a result of our, our cumulative exposure to Western yeah. environment. Mm-hmm. But the, the diversity of their microbiome to me is still unexplained because it's not due to a diversity of foods that they're eating. Right. I was down there for over 10 days and we pretty much just ate cassava, bananas, and drank water from the river. Hmm. And I'm, con- I'm convinced that it's drinking of water from the river where you're just constantly mm-hmm. getting this influx of microbes from the environment and then eating prebiotic fibers in the, in the bananas or the cassava that like augment whatever those microbes are that you're getting from the environment. Huh. But it's definitely wow. not a diversity of foods. We, get, we eat far more diverse foods in western culture so yeah but we also process them quite a bit more so that's uh i wonder if that has anything but that's speculative i i I haven't i'm not saying do the study i'm just yeah that's really interesting we should do the study yeah well we could do the study we'll talk about that another day though well you just talked about um you know this whole concept of brain aging. So I'm going to take it to my area because I just find this interesting. I know that you mostly study infant health, um, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, I've, I was blown away. I think I was at a talk uh, last year on the gut microbiome and dementia, you know, which is my area. And um, it's just so out of left field almost. It's like, wait, how does what's, you know, these little microbes in our stomach, how the heck does that have anything to do with, like brain aging or, or the development of dementia. Do you, and so I'm, I'm sure that's just one example. Can you give us a rundown of some of the more interesting associations of the microbiome with health that may just seem like something you wouldn't be expecting? 
Sure. Yeah. So I think the brain aging one, you know, it's not, it's, it's more tangible than you might think when you start to look at the evidence, the Tell gut brain how. axis, the gut mm -hmm. brain axis, I think is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not an expert in this area, but um, we have the vagal nerve stimulation uh, that's related to, um, to uh, microglia in the brain, which are, mm -hmm. are meant to be there basically to clear any kind of inflammatory um, invaders in the brain. Um, and we also know that, so back to kind of like the mucosal barrier, which is regulated by the microbiome, mm -hmm. when we start to have more, you know, theoretically, when there's more permissibility or permeability of the gut, you can allow for, you know, particles or, or remnants of um, gram negative bacteria, like, like lipopolysaccharides mm -hmm. to get into the bloodstream, mm -hmm. LPS and, and uh, lipopolysaccharides can cause chronic low-grade inflammation, people who have more leaky guts, as, as kind of common nomenclature calls it. Mm -hmm. But then there's also, you know, direct invasion of, you know, you know, you can actually have passing or translocation of bacteria from the gut to the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And there's some evidence that bacteria can also be translocated from the, from the bloodstream to the brain. Oh, that's really interesting. Barrier. Wow. So, so I think that, you know, it, it's at least an hypothesis worth exploring more, yeah. whether there's a microbial component of cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease related dementias. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's getting more traction just because of the, you know, the, the accumulating failures in drug treatment for Alzheimer's disease and, and people wanting to look for alternative um, hypotheses. Um, but, but I think, I think that, you know, the contribution of the microbiome to chronic health disorders um, can be through either, you know, direct breakdown of foods in our digestive system. You know, that mm -hmm. the microbiome is producing, you know, 5% of our energy that we get from foods. It also produces small molecules like short chain fatty acids, which can have, can be metabolized by our colonocytes, but also can get passed into circulation. And there's receptors for um, acetic acid, one of our uh, short chain fatty acids in different um, body sites. Mm -hmm. um, acetic acid can also regulate appetite. Um, there's other metabolites, a whole host of microbial metabolites produced from the microbiome that make it into circulation. It can have many different effects um, throughout our body. Um, I also mentioned, of course, the microbiome can create these molecules that have um, HDAC inhibition or other epigenetic effects. And then again, you know, microbiome leading to chronic low-grade inflammation. So those are just some of the kind of common pathways, I think, that microbiome can affect inflammatory or chronic diseases. Wow. Um, but there's probably many others. And so many, it's, you know, mechanistic, so many areas mechanistic insight is one of the things that epidemiology is, it's not the strength of epidemiology, uh -huh. but epidemiology studies can hypothesize these mechanistic links and mm. then we get to test them in, in experimental models. Sure. One thing, one thing that I, I, I kind of alluded to, but I didn't touch on is that with the microbiome, also this falsifiability, you can test out a lot of these associations if you collaborate with somebody who's working with germ-free mice. So yeah. you have your groups of interest, maybe that's from a randomized trial where you actually have experimental contrast. You can then take post-treatment samples, microbiome samples, transplant them into germ-free mice, mm -hmm. and you could see whether the phenotype replicates. And that gives you some sense of whether that's 
potentially really causal. Super and so that's what's I think gotten people really excited about um, microbiome and obesity, microbiome and cardiovascular disease, microbiome and hypertension is that when you take monozygotic twins sharing the same genome, but discordant on these phenotypes like obesity, and you transplant it into germ-free mice, you can see a replication of the phenotype over and over given the same diet. Hmm. Wow. So, you know, an obese or a germ-free mouse that gets the obese microbiota from the obese twin becomes obese. The wow. germ-free mouse that gets it from the lean twin stays lean, Very suggesting that the microbes in germ-free mice are potentially causal for these outcomes. Cool. So we're running a little short on time here. This is been a great conversation, but Brian and I have a burning question. Yes, this is very will, uh, important for us. Yes, I will, yes it, it is. So my wife and I are about to head to Vermont for the summer, and it's, of course, the uh, beer mecca of the East Coast, and our absolute favorite thing to do is to go mountain biking for a little while and then sit and look at the mountain views with a pint of Fiddlehead IPA. Yeah. And I live and I, in the beer mecca of the Midwest, Chicago. So we uh, uh, we need to know about how craft beer is affecting the microbiome. Well, exactly. And but although I'll counter that, yeah, about that Noel went to uh, Minnesota. Oh, and, uh, great pretty, beer there too. Yeah, I, 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 they I think can contest you. I think. Fair enough. Fair enough. I drink a lot yep. of Minnesota beer. So <laughs> you've had Surly Furious. It's not. It's delicious. In yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely has. <laughs> that was so, that was the beer, the craft beer that turned me on to craft beer. Oh, it's so that, all right. Good. So all Summit, three of us, something's been around forever, though. We're all speaking the same language here. How is our gut doing? Tell us. Yeah, I mean, Sander Katz oh, built a career. No, on this. This but more specifically, what what we're what we're interested in is there's so much yeast, especially in these like hazy IPAs that I love. You know, they're like literally you can see the yeast sediment just sitting at the bottom there, and I'm throwing all that in my stomach, you know, daily. So, you know, how does that much yeast, you know, is it good, bad, not either for our our microbiome? What do you think? So, um, realistically speaking, I love craft beer, and I'm you know. I'm not going to change my habits drastically based on the evidence thus far, but ethanol itself, right, mm -hmm. is something that we put on our hands to kill microbes. So <laughs> ethanol, right. probably not itself a great thing for your microbiome. Studies okay. have kind of borne that out. Excess drinking, probably more than drinking than you guys are doing, um, is associated with lower gut microbiome diversity in adults. Mm -hmm. um, FMT studies, interestingly, have shown less efficacy in heavy drinkers. So they've done this in college students. They said, okay, we're going to do FMTs. What's and then FMT? we're going to let you Sorry. binge. Oh, fecal microbiome transplant. Oh, 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 yeah. You need to explain and they that find Okay. And that they don't work is the one thing that keeps them, not the one thing, but one of the things that keeps them from working well is excess drinking. Ah. So that's just a, that's just one thing to, to, to note. <laughs> excess drinking, probably not good. Yeah. But the other components of beer do have, you know, they're rich in polyphenols. Polyphenols are known to promote certain gut microbes like bifidobacterium. Mm -hmm. So you're probably okay there. You're probably getting some benefit from those uh, yeast-rich beers, the hazy IPAs. Although, um, you know, you got to just make sure that it, everything's in balance. Moderation is right. the key to life. Well, that's the that's that's what I was wondering is if I, am I throwing things so far out of balance? But you know, it, in certain contexts, like you explained, that yeast might be good. But if it's just my stomach is half yeast, 
<laughs> I don't drink this much beer, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but I do enjoy. Um, you know, it, but it's just it's just a quote. I do I, from way before talking to you. I'm like, is this good for me to be putting? I, I know how alcohol affects your health, right? But the yeast is what I'm just curious about. You know. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you've seen all the epi studies. One to two drinks per day seems to sure. always be beneficial. Yeah, whether which is so funny because that's just focusing on the alcohol or not. Right? The, yeah. It get, kind of gets back to Gassan's story. First, they're going out for a bike ride. Then they're having their yeast yeah. beer. Is it because people who do more physical activity and, you know, get out and do stuff? Gassan, you're like that dude in the Michelob Ultra commercials, you know? I'm like, who are these people going out biking before that? I just want to go have a beer. I assure you that I'm, like, I'm not that athletic. <laughs> okay, cool. Do you get do you get Heady Topper up where you, your place oh, is in the there market? You go. Uh, we're we're gonna have a have a podcast on that. That's a yeah uh, yeah. I, I'm I'm an hour and change away from the yeah. alchemist, so it's everywhere where I'm at. Awesome. So yes. And well, we can do like, our own self experiment. <laughs> we could do our own yeah. self experiment. I'll drink Pilsner's <laughs> if you drink Heavy Tavern. Right. And you bring Done. this is the next episode. The, yeah, bring bring the toilet. We'll install it at my house. <laughs> and the smart and the underwear. smart underwear. Yeah, and the smart underwear. underwear. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. Well, this is so interesting. I think we're going to ask you one quick question and then uh, Gassan's going to close. I mean, you kind of already answered some of this, but you know, maybe you haven't mentioned some of it. Where do you think the field is going in the next 10 years that you haven't talked about? Sure. So I think the, you know, the field's young and I think it's going in a direction um, away from the 16S rRNA amplicon sequencing, which for some people that doesn't mean anything, but <laughs> right. it's the common type of sequencing that's been done historically, but that's changing because the cost of sequencing is coming down. So now mm. there's more whole genome shotgun sequencing can be done for about $100 or less um, per sample. So that's changing and that's going to allow more insight into strain, species and strain level, gotcha. which is important for translation mm -hmm. and also allow for functional, you know, allowing us to see the functional potential of the changes in the microbiome. So I think that's going to give us a lot more insight and hopefully less noise in the data so we can look across studies and see more consistent signals because yeah. that's been missing with 16S data, Amplicon data, which is more genus level associations. And under one genus, there's multiple species that can have very different functions. Yeah. So moving towards that, I think there's also going to be, because of our more precise measurement, more information about the complexity of the microbiome and how that informs um, medicines that we're taking and nutrition. I think that the, the field of precision nutrition, precision medicine, whether you like it or not, is going to at least be tested through the next wave of NIH studies because there's a lot of interest. So we can get a better idea of whether dietary guidelines are one for all or whether we need to have more nuance in that. Um, and then I think that you're going to find more associations with other health outcomes like Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. I think, you know, those, those links are not so far-fetched. I think we might be able to collaborate in the future, Brian. Let's do it. Awesome. Great. All well, right. Thanks again. For well, thanks so much for having me on. I Thank appreciate you. it. This was great. Yeah, I appreciate it. Before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which will be held in maybe three or four weeks from now. Yeah. Uh, assuming no more 
dramatic spikes, which I guess we still could happen. Shh, don't say it out loud. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Membership also gets you access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. Also, just a quick statement that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We really appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks.